It's no good. Turn a bit. Now the other way. Other way. Head down. Round again. Now. It's the dress. Take it off. podcasts in batches and it so happened that we've got four films in this batch which is often the case and three of them were very dark and we've done two of those dark ones so far but one of them I think of as if the other were painted with matte black paint this one would be painted in sort of a yet bright yellow um, shining lustrous paint because it's I think of this as a film full of light and, and for warmth and it's called Slightly alarmingly, it's called Age of Consent, and you think that's a bad title for it? I think it's a terrible title for it. I think it cheapens the film. Yes, and it, it sets up the wrong expectations, doesn't it? It also implies a motivation that I don't think is there. No, thank and you. I, I totally agree. I think, but I think there's two reasons for it having that title, and the most persuasive one is it's based on a novel with that title, and as a novelist, they can't complain when they keep the title of the novel for the movie. Have you read the novel? No, but I want to. Having seen this film, I very much want to. But I'd the other, like to as well. Beg your pardon? I'd like to as well, just to know yeah. what the focus was of the book as opposed to the film, just out yeah. of curiosity. But the other reason for keeping that title is that there's, this isn't that many years after Stanley Kubrick's film of Lolita. Well, yeah, and the various remakes of that over the years. Yeah, but what I'm saying is they would have sensed a commerciality in that. But... Let's get this out of the way right at the beginning. Helen Mirren is obviously uh, of age because she's this strapping Amazon. She's this blonde tropic goddess. Is that a fair comment? I looked it up to be on the safe side. She was 24 when she made this. And she's a member she of the Royal Shakespeare Company. But, uh, and she's supposed to be this naive child of nature, a bit like Honey Child Rider in the James Bond movie Doctor No. But she's such a great actress that she can absolutely play that. She is. I... I think we need to bring up quite early on here the subject of accents oh so that bugged you well i, I it's funny i agree because my very first note and, this, and i made a lot of notes for this my very first note is mason with an aussie accent <laughs> well when he remembers it seems to me that may either it was dropped part way through filming or it was hit upon during filming but some sequences he has the accent some he doesn't and the thing is james mason i like james mason as an actor he's a very likable presence on screen but yes, he's, he's just James Mason. But he's and tremendously warm and appealing in this movie, I would say. You essentially get James Mason in a hat, you get James Mason in, say, a Navy uniform, you get James Mason in this film in shorts. That's It's still James Mason. But There's no, it's James Mason with a beard, very good beard. Because what we haven't said is that, and this is one of the great greatnesses about this film, and I think this is a small masterpiece. Uh, he's a painter, and that's very important to this film because I don't know if Michael Powell was a painter, I wouldn't be surprised before he was a director. But he was a director of genius. And this film 
because it's about this painter who's sort of burnt out and he goes to this tropical island and he meets Helen Mirren. That's kind of the story in a nutshell. He's, uh, his painting is really important and that whole aspect of, of his need for creative visual art is an, uh, an essential part of this film. It is. It's curious. I mean, if we go right back to the very beginning, there's a yes. curious title card on this, which I don't fully understand how the Trector's Guild let happen. You but have it's to described stop at as... this point, uh, and there are two versions of this film, the director's cut and the release cut, and in preparation for this, I watched both of them. Now, I can tell you the right. sure way you can tell them apart. Are you ready? So, what... Music is the one, I think. Yeah, well, I, this is my, it's true. The music's different from in each one from the beginning, but I wanted to bring up this one little scene, which is there's some cuts between the two, but this is, this, in a funny way, this is the most pronounced difference. James Mason has come to this tropical island to get away from everything, and he's moved into this hut, which is basically a wreck of a cut hut, but it's got a, on this beautiful beach, so it's not like entirely a bad thing. And he's clearing the place up, and he's dug a hole, and he's putting all these tin cans in it, just chucking all this rubbish in the hole. And the dog, we'll to get to the dog later, but uh, the dog is standing beside the hole. He's come to the island with a very cute dog. And he throws the, the junk in the hole and it spooks the dog. And in the release print, James Mason apologizes to the dog and in the director's cut, he doesn't. Is that the only difference? No, there's substantial okay. difference. Well, it's not that it's, there's difference in, in length, lengths of scenes. Certain scenes are cut quite differently. Certain sequences are cut quite differently. But you are right, the music's a big difference. The release print, well, I'm gonna, you're gonna have to tell me who did the music for both now. Where's Stanley uh, Myers? Was it not Stanley, Stanley Myers? Stanley Myers did was the, release the second. Uh, he did the re-release or the replacement soundtrack. Well, he did the, the commercial Cold release. Thorpe? Was it somebody called Thorpe? They're both. Like they're both good. I I should defend um, Stanley Myers Skull because Thorpe. I I do like. I'm a real fan of his music. He he does a great jazzy score. But the other guy's work is very good too. Well, I only watched the Skullthorpe version. Which, which is, yes, that, that, that's the director's cut. And so you start um, off by saying there's something that the DGA might object to. Well, yeah, the title card of the film says Norman Lindsay's Age of Consent, which yeah, is interesting because it's Norman clearly Lindsay not... Norman Lindsay is the novelist. And that's, exactly. But you wouldn't describe a film that way. Yes, you, you would. would have because it as Michael Powell's Age of Consent. Allow me to contradict you. If you look at, for instance, the uh, Harry Palmer movies, they were like Lynn Dayton's uh, Funeral Berlin, Lynn Dayton's... De well, Len Dayton is a name. He's he is a brand that will sell. Whereas well, I don't think Norman Lindsay is going to sell big to most yeah, cinema channels. Well, I don't think that that's the crucial argument to use at the DGA. Though. Anyway, so that's a strange title card. I think it's Michael Powell's film, not Nigel okay, Lindsay's. So we've got film. ten minutes in, and we've got to discussing the first title card. This is going to be a good one. <laughs> I, I think so. Right. I also didn't realise that it was Norman Lindsay uh, that the film Sirens was based on. It's the same story. I have oh, no idea. Oh, how similar! There's a very similar because they're about the artistic inner life and this erotic stumbling into the erotic in its tropic paradise right well yeah sirens is an adaptation of the same book i didn't know that it's not just another similar book it's the same book well i don't know about that but it's, yeah it's nigel Lindsay's uh, norman Lindsay's uh, story but I, I i think these might be two different stories because no they must be two different stories well i was looking up norman Lindsay because i wasn't familiar with him and yeah. i was looking up his artwork which I'm not that impressed. Hang on, is he a painter? He's actually a painter. Yes. Oh, that's I had no idea. I thought he might just have invented this Gauguin-esque character. But no, no, no. This is essentially a memoir that he wrote. That's why I'm quite interested in reading it, because it's a, 
a memoir disguised as a novel. Yeah, Sirens is something different. But it's still based on um, Norman Lindsay, though. Oh, well, maybe it's from a different part of his life. Maybe he had a very interesting life. Yeah, this is what I'm saying, is that yeah, this is clearly a guy who's out there more than I'd ever have noticed. Oh, because... so he had this fantastic, anyway, fantastic memoirs. Um, but the, the thing I love about this is that I, the painter and the world he moves in feels real to me. It feels authentic. Yes. Um, I, I, I think until it gets to the island, I find it quite irritating. Well, but there isn't much before it gets to the island. But once he gets to the island, he, I think you and I will agree about this. If not, we need never speak again or meet. Um, he gets there and the shack is a wreck. And he, but he doesn't mind that much because he's come to this tropic paradise. He's got away from them. He's got a very cute dog with him. The dog's name is, I've written it down. But Godfrey. Godfrey. So he's cleaning out the shack. And he says something like, and he takes, he's arrived with all these supplies. It's not too bad. He's got all this lovely food and booze with him. And he's got some toilet paper. He picks up his roll of toilet paper and he says, we have to inspect the dummy, Godfrey, or something like that. We haven't inspected the dummy, meaning the outdoor toilet. And he goes to the outdoor toilet and he opens it and it's been used for storage. And it's just, it's like a shed full of stuff. And you'd expect his face to fall. Like, oh no, I've got to clear all this camera. But what happens is he sees all these tins of paint, like house paint of different colors. And he's instantly excited. Do you know what it reminded me of? What? It's another film we've done. It reminded me of Calamity Jane. Yes. And where they do up the shack. <laughs> Within a couple of weeks, it's all painted and beautiful. And Well, now that you mention that, it is a bit like that. But, but it's, that's a rather cool comparison because what he goes on to do is, because he's an artist, he kind of turns the shack into a work of art. He does paintings yes. on it. But he also does amazing things. Like he finds this big, flat disc saw, like from a sawmill. And he paints it bright yellow so it looks like a sun and he puts it in the centre of his view. Please tell me that you were moved and impressed by that. Yes. Great. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so and I, I, wouldn't you love to live in that shack? Oh, absolutely. I mean, isolated life appeals to me no end. Um, my only irritation would be that there are some neighbours, but I'm pretty sure but as he, they do. He says exactly that, doesn't he? He does. And this is part of the problem with the film is this inclusion of the bloody dog because... I, look, I've got to say that the dog, this film in some ways is a really broad comedy, and it, you know, yeah. like really broad, and it's got a dog that does tricks in it, but I've, I've got to say, I loved it. I love the dog doing tricks. I would have been happier if he had nobody to talk to, if it was all done visually. Instead, he talks to the dog, and it's almost like we get a voiceover because the dog's there. Well, it's, it's like when really people write bad audio. That suggests why he's got the dog, because he needs somebody to talk to. You've solved it, Matt. But having got the dog, they've got a dog that's trained to do things like slip out of its lead in a beguiling way, then slip back into it. That was brilliant, when it hears him coming home and it runs oh, back. Oh, you like that? So I thought you were about to denigrate that. But I still hate dogs. I was uh, quite pleased no, to see that one got savaged in this. Look, we're both cat people, but this dog is, is really great. So he's on this island, and then he meets this uh, girl, and oh, but her introduction is amazing. So he it lands is. on this dock. Uh, there's, a, there's this handsome, muscular young rapist who runs a boat <laughs> suit. We'll get to that later. Who, who uh, has boated, boated him out to the island. And there is this wonderful feel of an unspoiled paradise at the point in the early 60s, right? You could go to a place like this by a motorboat from the mainland of Australia. Anyhow, he's unloading at the dock and he's unloading all of his, his groceries, which I mentioned earlier, and he starts to ferry them off to the shack. So you pull it as if there's a thing. Yeah, my laptop isn't charging. We don't want that, do we? I'm going to take no. a quick break. Uh, have a glass of water, you know. Yeah, let me just see. I, I don't have a quick love I'll... affair with some gorgeous actress from the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'll be straight back. 
So Matt's just told me that we're running out of battery power at his end, which has made for a relaxed and I think worthy discussion of this fantastic film. It has to be said that Michael Powell is a filmmaker of genius and great stature. He did things like, okay, let's, let's commence the list. He did A Matter of Life and Death. He did um, Colonel Blimp. I, there's a longer title than that. He did The Red Shoes. If you were going to see his, my Michael Powell top picks would be Black Narcissus, Red Shoes, um, Peeping Tom, Tom yeah. and this film. Yeah. Um, I mean, Michael Powell has made good films, but I've never really rated him as a director because I've never watched a film and thought, oh, this could be a Michael Powell film. He doesn't have much in the way of a distinctive style or look to his films. May I say so, that one thing, his, I think his style is so pure, it's possible not to notice that it's there, but he, he does things like <laughs> he really knows when to move in for a close-up. He does. Unfortunately, this film has a lot of technical issues that I can't let lie. Well, if, let me launch a preemptive charm offensive by saying I think that the, this film was done on a shoestring, relatively speaking. It was a cheap movie, but I think he achieved wonders with it. It looks lovely. The location's beautiful. He gets a lot out of it. There's some amazing shots in there. There's one of um, Helen Mirren when she's shrimping late at night or oh, crawling. I can't Matt. remember which. <laughs> I'm so and it's got pleased. the flaming torches I'm, around. Yes! I'm just, let me find the exact thing. That, but I, the point is, what I'm, I'm babbling about is exactly... Here it goes. Superb photography when Helen is waiting at night with a burning torch. Yeah, it's a really nice shot. And it's, I've just recently watched about five films with appalling night shoots in them. So it was quite Look, nice to see this, something This guy, there. he's a master, uh, Michael Powell. And whoever he hired to do the photography, at some point we may be able to mention that name. It, it's, they've done a wonderful, fine job. The script is good too. This is, everybody here is, and Mason is a tremendously, he's a, he's a real movie star. He has great presence and... You just kind of like the guy, as Matt says, because he's James Mason. But I liked him even better because he's this kind of Gauguin castaway painter. You know, he's got this, he's got a beard. You didn't mention the beard. He's got a dodgy Aussie accent, but he's got a nice beard. You mentioned the shorts, but I think he looks the part with his beard. And, and Mason looks great in this. He's, he's, he's in good condition. Well, he's, I've got to say, Helen Mirren looks even better. When I was, a, I saw this movie late night on, probably on BBC when I was a kid. Uh, we must have had a colour TV by then, which was quite extraordinary. And in my, like, my fervent adolescent memory of this, this the entire film was, was about Helen Mirren naked frolicking in the surf. I think there's probably about 30 seconds of that in the movie. But it blew my mind because she's a goddess. She's stunning. She's a fantastic actress. But as a kind of sexual presence, or even just a presence of this, this extraordinary innocent nude spirit, which is sort of what it's about because he's... Well, I was talking about the, the close-ups, uh, and I made these notes. I, I wrote all these notes about how fantastic she looked, and I wrote, boy, can she act. And there's this great scene where her acting and Powell's directing come together, where, and this is not, although this might sound creepy, there actually isn't anything creepy about it. Uh, James Mason <laughs> is trying to paint her. He's, he's, I kept forgotten the name of his, his character. He's trying to paint her, and he just isn't happening. He asks her to undress for him. And the, it goes in for a close-up of her face, and it's just she, this wonderful actress who's not saying anything, just registering emotions on her face. She's sort of thinking it through, following it through. And I just thought that was an incredible shot. She is superb in this. Her accent, much like Mason's, is awful. I, I think that this must be true. I, 
I didn't realise she was meant to be Australian. I thought she was meant to be English because she's doing a sort of bizarre Cockney thing. The, Matt is entirely correct about this, but it didn't spoil the movie for me. That's I just, the thing. If it's still a good performance in spite of that, it's a hell of a performance. Yeah, because <laughs> they would have been much easier. They would, it would have been much easier for them to do those, give those performances. They could have acted more freely if they'd just been talking in their natural accents. So yeah. the fact that they're getting all this across, because she's a wonderful character... The, she first appears when Mason's unloading at the docks and he's putting all his, his uh, groceries there. He's stacking them. The boat containing the rapist, we'll get to that later, has driven off. So he's alone on this, as far as he knows, on this tropic paradise with his lovely dog Godfrey. And he stacks all his groceries there and he goes off. He starts relaying them to the shack and he says, Godfrey, aren't you going to come with me? And Godfrey doesn't. So he just leaves Godfrey there. And Godfrey is peering and I think maybe barking at the shadowy underside of the dock. And in a scene which is one of the great scenes of cinema, Helen Mirren emerges from the shadows under the dock. She does. It's really well done. Um, I also like that there's a slight... He knows that she's there, the, the guy with the boat, because she's left her uh, shells and things. That well, she's he knows that she's there. been in the vicinity because part of the thing she does is she viciously exploits the local ecosystem uh, in her own way, raping the ecosystem. Now that's that's kind of over egging it. So she she's selling shells. So she's left those there, but she also sells live shellfish, which I think is a little bit nastier. So he knows she's been in the general vicinity, but I don't think he knows she's lurking. The only person who knows she's lurking under the dock is Godfrey. He's Suster. Yeah. Um, there's also a scene later on with her, where again it's all in the eyes, I think, but her drunken aunt is it. No, it's her grandmother. Now, this grandmother. is this is it's quite a strong story because um, her mother is dead and she's kind of reviled and, and ostracized because they say, quite frankly, her mother was the town bike. Yes, although we don't find that out until quite a bit later. No, a lot later in the film. So she's stuck with her grandmother, who is an alcoholic. And the thing about this grandmother is we were talking in another context about performances that are from a different film. Yes. Yeah. She. This is a big problem, the grandmother. I did not like her at all I, well i agree because she's this comedy evil drunken crone i don't think there would have been any harm in playing that much harder okay well this is very interesting because we've both written down a thought on this topic and usually they are the same thought but i've written okay so this is where granny over overacts and hams it up terribly but pal does that because he's making a comedy here see the dog godfrey and you also see Nat Kelly, who's the, the annoying friend oh. who turns up later. No, we'll get to that. But all <laughs> of these things are broad comic things. So I think that it's just mm. intentional. But I've, to, in response to what you just said, I've also added, if she played it um, realistically, it would be too scary. Uh, and um, yeah, scary. And another word, like, tragic. Too scary and tragic. So but you disagree. Is, you feel that's what, exactly what it needs. I don't think there's enough here to make a comedy. So it's lighthearted. I, I, I agree that it's the comedy is often a mistake, but it doesn't ruin the film for me. No, it doesn't. But I think if you were to have made a film that was just about their relationship, him and her, and have those characters on the outside, you could have had much darker characters, not lighter characters. I, I lighter agree, characters. except for there's his no, no except for his friend between, who seems to um, be to be nothing except comic relief. So maybe yeah. you could have just dispensed with him. That's why I'm thinking the director's cut could have been a very different film. I, the character of Nat, I hated. No, no Nat is this annoying, sponging friend. That to, we set up this thing, and although there's nothing overt between the characters yet, 
we, we of course know that Helen Mirren and James Mason are going to get together, and it's the whole trajectory of the film. So although it's unstated and um, subtextual at this point, this is all on the way. So what has happened? We reach a certain point in the film where everything's going really well, and James Mason is beginning to paint again, and he's found his muse, who's Helen Mirren. And although it's not clear to him yet, it's clear to the audience that the, a love affair is going to ensue. He's in this tropic paradise with this goddess. He's rediscovered his, his art. He's painting better than ever. He's still, and he's living the perfect life. And at this moment, this annoying friend from Melbourne, or Sydney, or wherever they were before, turns up because he's, uh, he's on the run from predators. He has a, a rather good line. He says, I'm a man with a pack of werewolves on his heels. And I think... Like he's a really annoying character, but his point, the point is he's supposed to be there as an annoying character, as a spoiler. And the audience really feels like, like you just think James Mason's there, there's this fantastic bird he's about to paint and then eventually they'll fall in love. Everything's looking rosy. Then this fucker turns up and that's his plot function. That's his plot function. Well, his actual function is just to extend the running time to film length because all of the scenes with him don't really serve a purpose. And then you've got that very long-winded sequence where he's romancing the neighbour. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. None of it can be in the film, and you still have the same film. No, I... I Anything that, could have come between them. That is exactly... That's true. But the thing is, having got him there, they felt they had to get full value out of him. He's played by, I think, Jack McGowan. Is that right? Yeah. Who is a great actor. He's in some Polanski movies. Like, he's, he's not that man. He's just a great actor playing that man to perfection. I'm, and I'm fine with that, and I'm fine with people playing annoying characters as well, but I just don't think this film needed an annoying character, and it, it kills no, the tone uh, of the I, film. You can make that argument, and it, uh, I don't mind. I'll go along with that, because I just want to get back to the story of <laughs> Helen Mirren and, uh, and Well, James as I was Mason. saying, there's the scene um, with her grandmother, where her grandmother hits her with a stick yeah uh, across the back, and she immediately grabs... She doesn't even cry out. I really like that. Yeah, she she's very strong. Like, the, um, the, if anybody's thinking this is a pervy movie that exploits women, the strongest character in it is Helen Mirren. She is. Even, again, I mean, if we jump forward to that rape that we keep foreshadowing. Oh, okay, so what is what happens is... all. So Helen Mirren's character... I've forgotten her name for a moment, but it's a nice name. Is, um, <laughs> Both forgotten. <laughs> yeah, but she's basically Honey Child Rider. She's a child of paradise, fro frolicking in the surf, and harvesting the ocean's bounty. So, for instance, one of the things is she goes back to the mainland to sell... Um, crayfish and stuff and there's a really great scene at the local store where she, they've been ripping her off for years underpaying her for her goods where James Mason insists on them um, giving her a better deal but the yeah. point about that we're getting at is that she goes back and forth from the mainland to the island the same way that James Mason does and everybody else in this boat uh, motorboat run by this handsome muscular suntanned young man who lives in a pair of swimming trunks and nothing else and uh, <laughs> of course, as he's taking her back to the island, there's just the two of them. And uh, James Mason was supposed to be along for this, but he's doing something. You think he's getting drunk in the bar or something. Yes. He's letting the side down. So the, the boatman, I, I, you can't say this is an attempted seduction. It's very clear that it's, it's an attempted rape. And Helen Mirren does a great job of fending him off. She well, pushes him, him, water, him off, she leaves she? him in the water and then drags him back to shore by a rope in the boat. Yeah, so again, she's a very strong... And, and it's better... It's even... It's better than that because it's very well set up because what happens is he stops the boat and he's a little bit nervous. And at this point, he could just be a nervous suitor, which would be okay, right? And he offers her... She, she doesn't smoke, 
So he offers her some chewing gum. He says, do you want some chewy? I think he says. And he offers her some chewing gum, which she chews throughout. So he then tries to, to, uh, to kiss her and then basically tries to fling her on her back and shag her. And she fends him off very successfully. She pushes him overboard. Then she spits the gum after him. Do you remember that bit? Yes. It's just perfect. But then I've forgotten that. She then doesn't leave him to drown. She starts the motor, motor very business-like way. She starts up the outboard motor, sets forth to the island, but she chucks a line over so he can he doesn't actually drown, and he's dragged behind her. But the uh, the line which I know you're going to quote, do you want to quote? Because we haven't can, we haven't conferred about this, but I know you've written down the same line I have, just because I think we have a telepathic link. It, the um, line I've is. Only, I've only written one line, and I don't think it's the one you're thinking of because it's just two words. Okay, no. Well, the line I've written down is he shouts after. It's supposed to be a compliment, you stupid bitch. <laughs> no, I didn't write that. <laughs> what did you write down? It was the sheriff um, offering her his condolences for her dead grandmother by saying, tough luck. <laughs> this is very Australian. Who, so just to leap ahead, the, the we get rid of one of the spoilers, which is his <clears throat> terrible friend, Nat. We get rid of him. We think we're going to be in paradise. James Mason, Helen Mirren, paradise. Love and great paintings are going to ensue. And the evil grandmother comes along and she does this horrible thing like Helen Moon's been saving up her money to go to the she wants to go to the mainland and, and be a hairdresser right it's like this this really um, modest little ambition which you know is not worthy of this fantastic woman but it's, it is her ambition and she's saved up money before at her from her sales of seafood and shells and her grandmother's stolen it and drunk it Right. Yeah. And then not only does the grandmother interfere, like she's the one who puts the context of you filthy old pervert. She's underage. And you only want one thing. And James Mason at this point, maybe on some level, wants something more. But he really wants to paint her. That's the big thing. So she's this horrible spoiler. Having got rid of a one, we've got an even worse spoiler. And then she compounds it because she finds the place hidden in this rock pool uh, where Helen Moon's been hiding her money. And she steals it all. And this is, everything's going from bad to worse. And what happens is there's a, an argument between Helen Mirren and her grandmother. And they're standing on this cliff edge. And you can see what's coming. Her grandmother goes over and gets killed. And uh, this actually solves everybody's problems. So it's a, it's a really good thing. But I mentioned that Helen Mirren is a strapping Amazon. And she's like anything except underage. But in that moment, when she realizes her grandmother's dead, she actually does look like a child. She does, but then she very quickly handles it. <laughs> yeah, oh no, she does a great job. And it's one of those things where the subplot about Nat, now we didn't mention Nat leaving the island, but they finally got rid of him. And when he left, he stole all of our hero's money. Like, that's what kind of friend he is. But all these subplots yeah. come together in a wonderful way. It's almost in a DXX machina way to leave Mason and Helen on the island uh, with all the marbles, to use an American expression. Did I miss something at the beginning the guy with the gallery said that he was stood to make 35 grand from the sales was his share yeah somehow that had all been dissipated by the time we got to australia we don't know how oh is that not explained okay because I, no. I thought i missed something there no, the, that means when you ask about the differences between the two versions i've now managed to remember that the principal difference in running time is that there's way more in new york like there's whole scenes in new york so you well, probably explain the you probably agree with that the the Philistines who wanted to recut this for release, yeah. Not really. The, the editing I quite liked in New York because it's incredibly frantic and there seemed to be way more coverage of the scenes than there needed to be. Yeah, but, but I would also say that the depiction of the New York art world rang true to me. Okay. No, okay, so maybe you don't agree with it. 
I don't know what the New York art world's like. No, but it didn't seem phony. It might not have been accurate, but it, it rang true. It, this is a different thing. So it, it wasn't like um, a, a dreadful attempt to depict something that nobody understood. I think Michael Powell knows that world. And it set up James Mason's character perfectly. And one of the things that comes across most strongly in his performance is his love of painting and his desire to do a painting. Like it really felt authentic. But this was one of the great painters depicted in fiction. Another one I would say is Amius Crail in Agatha Christie's novel Five Little Pigs, known in America as Murder in Retrospect. It, I know I'm talking about a murder mystery, but the painter in that, like, he feels like a real painter to me with his passion for his painting. And again, I feel that with James Mason's character here. Out of curiosity, why was the Agatha Christie book renamed? Well, they frequently retitled things in the States, not least because they thought they could come up with better titles, and in this case they did. Did they? Oh yeah. Okay. Agatha, Agatha Christie rabbit hole being avoided here. So, in summary, what, if you were to, to talking to somebody who is thinking of maybe seeing this film, what would you say to them? Yeah, it, it's worth watching. It's definitely a good film. And I like any film where somebody is um, alone, especially on an island. There's not many of them out there, but there are a few. Um, I thought I made a list of them, but I clearly didn't make it in this book. <laughs> But there are a few I was thinking of. Um, let me just double check on this because mm, Shack Life looks beautiful. No, I like I, I like seeing an actor depict what they're feeling and what's going on in isolation without them having to voice it or use. Oh, that's voiceover. why you didn't want the dog to be there. And yeah, this is the thing: the dog really got in the way of that but then it seems to me that michael powell's not making the film that i'm expecting to watch yeah. so he wants to make this comedy i don't want to watch a comedy i think it would make a much better romantic film um even with essences of thriller because i think you could have made a lot more if you'd have made it more of a grandmother well, look if you went in that direction and you made the grandmother like a genuinely evil character and you could make the rapist even more of a rapist yeah <laughs> i love our that guy who's playing that role would be so shocked to have, to be have to have been referred by it, referred to as a rapist even then or even now I'm sure he'd be terribly shocked I'm sure he'd be more than flattered <laughs> but Helen Mirren is one of the great strengths of this so is James Mason look there are um, you could argue there are deficiencies like their bad accents this to me is a very... forgotten masterpiece by Michael Powell and I would add it to, I've already done that I've already added it to the top Powell movies there are problems. There, I mean, there's the sequences with Nat in the water with the dog attack and stuff like that. It's so badly edited. It feels like somebody's trying to salvage footage that hasn't worked. Um, didn't, didn't bother me, folks. But, you know, he's probably right if you're a purist, but I, I was fine with that. What did you do in photography? Uh, yeah, I could tolerate that because it wasn't action underwater. I thought it was lovely. It was by somebody who's very famous for doing underwater photography. And there's this clever thing at the beginning... This is one of the differences between the two prints. The print you saw began with static images of paintings. The release print begins with the underwater sequence of glorious fish in the coral reef. Heartbreaking now because that coral reef is so under attack by climate change. But this gorgeous... No, I think it had coral reef shots at the beginning of the version I watched. It goes into them, but it's, oh, okay. this is from the off. That's the first thing you see over the, right. over the titles. It's, uh, and you put me off my stride now, you contradictory fool. You're welcome. The point is... You go through this, both versions, you go through this ecstatic underwater landscape shot, you know, for real. And then you end up in an aquarium in New York, which is there to show the waterproof nature 
of a certain wristwatch and James Mason's peering in from the shop window outside that takes us into New York I thought it was a cool transition yeah like I say you interrupted me on the editing thing because I don't think you want to talk about it. Well, <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's an important issue, but you do. So I think it is. If you want to make a film, a if you're a professional director and you've worked as long as Powell has, something's wrong here with the footage because the sequences in New York, if they have, if they're his original edit, I can see exactly the editing style he was going for, and it works. They're punchy. They're fast. It's good. When you get to the island and you get those sequences with Ned, you get uh, Nat. Sorry, you get the sequences with the. Um, the neighbour as well, uh, the dinner, when they're having their dinner, which incidentally is, I, I think it's very funny, I think it's very well played with them both pretending to be posh and upper class. Well, you know what I've written here? Uh, it doesn't belong in the film. No, I've written, at this point, it's carry on up the coral reef. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of two people pretending to be something they're not, and you know, each of them is making it worse for the other one by doing such a good job of it. Uh, that whole thing of, you know, serve from the left and so on. But the editing on it is really bad. It's like there's shots that they just haven't got that they've had to cover. Well, I, I consider myself quite film literate. I've been watching films as long as I can remember. I like to think of myself as a bit of an expert. I didn't notice any, none of that bothered me. Uh, so I watched both versions and none of it struck me. So maybe you're, maybe you're an editor yourself, you're super sensitive to this stuff. Possibly, I don't know. It's just something that really stood out and it annoyed me because it, the same thing happens with the ending. The ending I think is very messy. And well, the ending—the ending is just the, the sort of freeze frame at one point. I, I do think it's a case of there's just not enough footage. But it, it felt I like everyone just went home. <laughs> yeah, but it kind of works in both of them. So maybe he's making the best of a bad job, but I don't understand that because anyway, Michael Powell has written a couple of volumes of autobiography. I hope he's devoted like a good hundred pages to this because I'd love to know more about this movie. Yeah, same here. I'd also really like to check out the other score, the Myers one. Just to see what yeah, the we'll watch both are. I've got both versions on the Blu-ray, which you will, why don't we, I'm seeing you for a handover of Blu-rays at some point soon. Let's do that. Okay. My only other comment on this film is those bananas will never ripen. <laughs> Just, is this, I hope this has nothing to do with the Helen Mirren because it already ripened. She's magnificent. On uh, the porch of the shack, yeah. right from the beginning, there's this massive bunch of bananas hanging. And throughout the entire oh, film, yeah. they're green. I they never that, I covered that shack, but I also covered a fantastic bunch of bananas. The shack, no, seriously, the shack is so beautiful. He's turned it into, the whole thing is a work of art, and it's just great. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. When I've got $100, I'm going to Brisbane to be a hairdresser. <laughs>